3: Slate Money is sponsored by OneHub, letting you securely store and share your business files online. Featuring the all-new OneHub Sync, the fastest way to keep all your teams working from the same page. Try it for free, and Slate Money listeners can receive a special discount by visiting onehub.com money. And by Trunk Club. Answer a few simple questions about your look, style, and size, and receive a trunk full of great-looking clothes that fit perfectly and make you look amazing. Only pay for the clothes you keep with no ongoing subscription, and shipping is free. Go to trunkclub.com money. And buy ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Go to ziprecruiter.com slash slate money. That's ziprecruiter.com slash slate money.
1: Hello, this is James Ledbetter, editor of Inc Magazine and host of Inc Uncensored. It's our podcast that you should listen to if you are interested at all in technology, entrepreneurship, cool companies, social media, angel investors, drones, startups, and just about anything else that hits the like buttons of the fine people who write for Ink Magazine and ink.com. We thought you, Slate Money listeners, would be interested in Inc. Uncensored, so we're putting a short excerpt from this week's episode at the end of this episode. Thanks for listening, and
4: I'll be back later. The following podcast contains explicit language.
5: Hello!
2: (laughs) Yes, this is a good one, people. This is the Grease edition of Slate Money. Your guide to the business and finance news of the week and the year, and this is the edition you have been waiting for. Finally It's gonna be a grease fire (laughs) arrived. We will ignore Jordan's bad pun. No, we won't. That was that was not a bad pun. That was that was that was an adequate pun. Um, I am Felix Salmon of Fusion. I am joined by Kathy O'Neill, the blogger at mathbabe.org. Hello, Felix. And of course, the pun boy Jordan Weissman, the Go- money box <laughs> columnist, Go- going grease lightning. Yes, okay. Anyway, but, I'm going to yeah, stop yeah, okay. now. That's all right. We will we'll stop with grease pl- puns, please. We've had we've had enough grease puns. We've yes, grease the wheel. Is, I'm not sure how long we have been talking about doing a greece show or at least talking about greece it seems i think every week for about 75 years we've we've said we're going to talk about greece next week because that then the deadline will have passed and then we can talk about it but then every week all that happens is they extend the deadline and there's still no deal so we now have enough actual stuff which has happened in greece and non-extended deadlines and stuff that we can actually talk about what's going on in greece so uh, I have a glass of ouzo or souvlaki or something, and, um, I Wait, am going to A glass to of
4: souvlaki? That is nasty. <laughs> that is, like, a, gla- a, a glass of white gloppy sauce and pork, is that Yeah, it?
2: I'm not, I, have, I have a glass of stuffed vine leaves, and, um, I'm just gonna sit back here, and I'm going to, I'm gonna ask Jordan to give me the 30,000 foot, like, why, Jordan, are we even talking about Greece in the first place?
4: Um, Yeah, that's actually a really good question, because Greece is not that big an economy, right? It's not even that big a piece of Europe's economy. But um, really why the world's attention is so focused on this is it it speaks to whether or not Europe as a project will succeed. I mean, that is really the 30,000-foot version of of why everyone is so obsessed about the fate of this one sort of irresponsible country.
2: Why... Okay, what what is the problem in Greece? like because apparently there was a Greece crisis, and I seem to have been hearing about Greece crises for at least five or six years now. So what is this crisis? So we need to go back into a little
4: bit of history to see to kind of talk about where all this comes from. Um, the euro of course, came into being in 1999. Uh, Greece joined in 2001 because initially it didn't meet all of the requirements it needed to. It was already sort of considered a, a marginal, uh, kind of a marginal member of the euro. Um, around 2009, when uh, everyone's economy or when the world's economy started tanking, thanks to well the financial crisis, It came out that Greece's uh, budget deficits, or that Greece had essentially been lying about its budget deficits, that with the help of some Wall Street bankers, it had been hiding the amount that it had been borrowing. Um, And as a result, markets freaked. Um, All of a sudden, it wasn't clear that their debts that they had were sustainable. Um, They started, the markets started uh, basically asking them to pay more and more in interest uh, with they issued bonds and it became clear there had to be some sort of a rescue and so that's how in 2010 we got to the first ever greek bailout um, and as part and you know again kind of trying to without getting too into the weeds the deal was europe was going to give greece money to cover its debts um, at the same time they were going to ask for all sorts of austerity measures
2: okay um, so let's i'm gonna i'm gonna jump in here and yeah. say okay so who exactly was being ba- bailed out here when you say europe gave greece money to cover its debts what you mean is that europe gave a bunch of money to greece greece then turned around and paid all of the debts which were due to drumroll french and german banks
4: absolutely yes large so this
2: was, was this was mostly like like all sovereign bailouts this was a bank bailout really and it wasn't the greek banks mainly it was you know, French and German banks and a few Italian banks.
5: I'm going to jump in here now, too, because we've already used the word irresponsible on the very first time you mentioned Greece. But I just, that's a very important point that um, that Felix just made, that the original loans to Greece were largely held by French and German banks and other banks. So they made loans to Greece,
4: assuming that they'd get paid back. And then when it looked bad, they got bailed out. Absolutely. I'm not saying Fran- I'm not saying Deutsche Bank was particularly responsible. I'm just saying in Greece's, Greece's former governments very much lied about how much debt they had. And that is, it's and, important for people to remember that. They lied because- about
2: how much debt they had. But more importantly, what happened was there was an election where the, the, the new technocratic government came in and said, oh, you know that 3% budget deficit we were meant to be running? It was actually a 13% budget deficit. And everyone that was when everyone freaked out. Um, the yeah. amount of debt, the stock of debt, was actually not massively higher than people thought it was. It was the flow it was the budget deficits which were massively higher no one knew how they could get covered and insofar as like it's a very common thing to just blame the lenders and say oh it's obviously the lenders fault because they had no you know they, they were irresponsibly lending um which to a certain degree is true but also to a certain degree it was government policy that under the terms of you know basel banking regulations which were set by the regulators in germany and the world um all eurozone sovereign debt had what was known as a zero risk weighting, which meant that if you lent money to greece you didn't need to hold any capital against that loan thank you Uh, so
5: much felix i was going to bring that up because i actually worked at like risk metrics which sort of tried to define the risk of other of banks holdings and hedge fund holdings and this was something that I never understood when I was working there like why by definition is sovereign debt any kind of government debt like considered zero risk when obviously there is history of default
2: and the answer to that question is very simple the answer to that question is that the regulations are made by sovereigns and sovereigns want to make it as easy and you know, as as possible for banks to lend them money because that way they get cheaper money.
4: Yeah. I I mean, I think, uh, again, just to kind of simplify, there is this mass delusion that uh, lending to Greece was as risk-free as lending to Germany. um, And that just was not the case, but it allowed Greece to continue along. uh,
2: It was never never risk-free. There was always a spread between, you know, it always cost Greece more money to borrow money than it did Germany. But here's the thing. When you borrow money... Um, there are two different um, components to the amount of interest that you pay. One is credit risk, which is what we are talking about, which is like, what is the risk of default? And that was under... Pe- pe- people had that too low in the case of Greece. The chances of default were higher than, than people thought. But then the other thing, which is, which came to the fore in recent weeks, is you know interest rate risk basically and and the problem in greece has not only credit risk it was also devaluation risk or what's known as convertibility risk that if you lend to Greece, they might not be able to repay you in euros at all because they might actually leave the euro. And no one was really at that point in the 2000s, no one was pricing in the risk that Greece might be forced to leave the euro. Because the whole point about the euro is that once you leave it, once you enter it, you cannot leave. There is no mechanism for leaving. Supposedly. (laughs) So So I kind of want to continue along the the big narrative so we can get to
4: the present day. So uh, the 2010 bailout happens. Uh, And Greece's economy um, begins to really seriously tank, whereas before it
2: had been sliding, all of a sudden Greece starts falling off a cliff. And later and is, on, is is that a causal relationship there that because of the austerity conditions attached to the bailout that caused Greece's economy to so get worse?
4: I, I, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is that people argue about the degree to which it was the austerity conditions. But the IMF itself has said that they miscalculated. The IMF, which was part of the first bailout, said we thought that these austerity measures would. You know, dock this this amount off of Greece's GDP. It turned out it docked a bunch more. We, you know, oops are bad. So one of the ways that people talk about
5: this now is that um, they weren't doing enough to actually help Greece get out of their debt hole. They were just trying to tell Greece to straighten up and be more disciplined and hoping that would help. And this is kind of like the kicking the can down the road theory of how to deal with this problem. And and
2: importantly and as in everything, you know what we're talking about in 2010 certainly is they certainly didn't help Greece get out of its debt hole because they didn't actually reduce Greece's debt. Greece's debt continued to go up through this bailout. It was just it was less and less being held by the private sector and more and more being held by the public sector. And we have to be clear about exactly I mean, there was all manner of weird alphabet soup, EC and EFSF and ESM and um ECB, there was all and IMF, but there was all these like weird alphabet soup of international institutions but they all begin with e really except for the imf <laughs> which means it's basically european public money which is bailing out greece yeah. and being lent to greece not being given to greece
4: and so you have this problem where they've been they've had more debt piled on their debt and their economy is tanking and i should say also it's not just the austerity measures in general um the euro is probably too valuable for greece, greece we we've probably talked about this before but greece probably needs a weaker currency for its economy to really thrive and at the beginning of the financial crisis, Europe had a very, very hard money stance towards monetary policy. Um, they even raised interest rates very early on when they shouldn't have. And so that was probably
2: also a disadvantage in Greece to some degree. But so, And, let, and you, I'm just going to jump in one more yeah. time here because this doesn't make intuitive sense to someone like me. Because, you know, why can't you just charge less for stuff in euros? Why does the currency you denominate things in matter?
4: well that 's actually that that is what they um, <laughs> wanted Greece to do. This is what they call an internal devaluation, which means essentially you need to cut your labor costs, you need to pay people less, you need to decrease your prices in euros. The difference is in that takes a lot of time that 's very difficult it 's very painful because people actually see their wages falling. It scares people um, when you and so what you 're saying is currency. it would
2: have been easier to just have a devaluing currency. Um, where the currency goes down in value than to have, internal price deflation where wages and prices go down exactly one is
4: basically if you do internal devaluation it's just years of grinding recession whereas if you do a, a monetary devaluation it's kind of a quick thing it happens you might suffer for it for a little while like we did, we saw in iceland but then you can bounce back because wages and prices adjust quicker and your exports can get going etc cetera, etc cetera. i think big okay. picture
5: though what's going on in this part of the history is that as the as the debt was large and they were getting bailed out so their debt was actually getting larger at the same time their economy is was was decreasing its ability to pay back this debt and actually the economy part was probably moving
4: even faster than the debt part yes so by 2012 everyone sort of realized this wasn't sustainable it looked like greece was not going to be able to continue making its debt payments uh It was there was fear also that if Greece had to default, um, you would get contagion, which is essentially the markets would turn on Italy and Spain because they would start worrying about whether or not they could pay their debts. Um, And it was a really kind of frantic moment. No one really knew what was going to happen next. So what they ended up doing was negotiating what was kind of this, this big debt restructuring where they got in. Almost all of the private lenders, not all of them, but almost, and said, "Okay, you're going to take about thirty-five cents on the dollar on your debt." They gave them what's called a big haircut. At the same time, Europe issued a bunch of new loans in order to help, uh, kind of continue paying to help make good on what they offered. Um, there also was another because Because to be buyback. clear here,
2: almost all of that thirty-five cents on the dollar was coming, again, from ECB, EU, IMF, EFSF, all of these euro institutions, that Greece basically wrote off all of its private bonds and didn't have to pay any of them except for just a tiny bit. Um, And most of the value that the bondholders got was coming from Europe. So now, at this point, Greece has almost negligible private debt and all of its debts are owed to big international european institutions. Yes,
4: this is the this is the great kind of switcheroo and it's sometimes you you this is the the big moment where a lot of people will say, well, Europe essentially bailed out its banks at the expense, expense of the Greeks. The thing to remember is that the banks did take massive haircuts. They they took, you know, they gave up about Sixty-five, seventy-five cents on
2: the dollar on their debt. Well, okay, so, no, I. We, okay, so. But no, so they, no the government, government the had banks. already bailed them out. What, what? Yeah. Yeah, the, the the government no. bailed out the, the Europeans bailed out the banks in twenty ten. We went through that already. In no, 2012, no, but there was there... It was the bondholders and the bondholders were my, mon, mostly not banks.
5: Yeah, the banks them. were protected. That was kind of the whole. The whole order of events. First, I could go back
4: through this. There were still even the bondholders still included some banks at that point. The the big if I I can go, unfortunately, I don't have the chart in front of me. But if you can look, you can see individual banks and their holdings switching as of 2012, not as of 2010. Anyway, if you want to say private bondholders, banks, the private bondholders also took uh, in the end, the private bondholders had to give up a big amount of their claim, a big portion of their claims. So it's not as if they were held completely harmless.
2: That's correct. the 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 haircut in Greece was much bigger than anyone had expected. But unlike most debt restructurings, where the um, a big haircut for bondholders means that you get your debt down to a sustainable level, in this case, the haircut meant that Greece still had way, way more debt than it could ever realistically service. Yes,
3: because exactly. the
2: official sector debt was not. Touched. It was only the private sector debt, and there wasn't that much private sector debt left after the 2010 bailout. And that kind of gets us to today, right? Uh,
4: Greece's economy keeps, since 2012, continued to deteriorate. There was actually a period of then kind of small, a little bit of bounce back growth, finally in 2014. Um, Then, of course... Of course, but that was after a twenty-five percent drop in GDP. Um, so you know, three percent growth after losing a quarter of your economy isn't really going to placate uh, you know the, the half of job the, the half of uh, young adults who are unemployed. Um, eventually, you get an election and you get the current government, Syriza, or, or led okay, by Syriza. So w-
2: let's let's um, we're going to stop this there, and Kathy is going to pick this up. But first, I am going to. Quickly mention our sponsor, OneHub, which is the better way to securely store and share your business files online. Basically, you keep your team totally up to date and it's super fast, it's super secure. It's called OneHub Sync and it uses the special peer to peer plus one technology, which means that if you sh- are sharing a project file, it can be a document, it can be a spreadsheet, whatever, everyone always has the latest version, super fast, and they have customer support, which is great. You know, everything is there for you. You can chat with real people, human beings. This is great for businesses. It's great for your business. It's great for storage and collaboration and syncing and backup and everything you need. So, Slate Money listeners, try OneHub free today and get a 30% discount by visiting onehub.com dot com slash money that's o-n-e-h-u-b dot com slash money kathy yes um pick pick us pick, pick this up at the uh let's say the election of syriza because at this point the greek people are mad as hell and this is earlier this year
5: okay So I think it makes sense in the in the more recent version, uh, the more recent events, to sort of name a cast of characters that we're going to be talking about. So the first one is uh, uh, who who was elected in the new elections, Alexis Tsipras, who's running the uh, Greek country, and then his finance minister, uh, Yanis Varoufakis. uh, Varoufakis. Varoufakis,
2: Varoufakis, Sorry, Yanis Varoufakis Varoufakis is is everybody's favorite finance minister. Can we call him incredibly good looking? He's gorgeous. Gorgeous. And
4: I don't know. I, and the, no, no, there's a lot of Voldemort comparisons. I don't know if I'd say incredibly
5: i go good with one. Captain Picard. But um,
4: okay.
2: l- let's call him Giannis but, but yeah, because I
5: can't pronounce so, his last name. And he's Oh, an come Akib- on. It's
2: not that hard. It's Varoufakis. Varoufakis. He's... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, um, and then the other guy we about, need course, to talk is about about, of to is Saturday. Wolfgang yeah, the, Schäuble.
5: Schäuble, who is the finance minister for Germany. And, of course, Angela Merkel, who's um, running Germany. So then there's the uh, other, uh, you know, the, there's other sort of institutions involved, like the IMF and the ECB, but we're just going to call them the IMF and the ECB. So anyway, the idea is... Alexis Tsipras is in, is elected by the people who are very very frustrated with this continuing recession, almost maybe depression, um, very high unemployment for young people, and they want uh, the newly elected government to um, negotiate better terms, like more debt um, forgiveness and better like less austerity measures, and that's exactly what these guys try to do, but they fail. That's sort of the story up till now. And the today. story
2: is that Yanis Varoufakis is. A professional economist now the first thing you need to know about finance ministers is that they are almost never economists central bankers are normally economists finance ministers are almost never economists and so this was uh verifakis was uh you know weirdly unique among finance ministers from the beginning by being an economist and the second thing you need to know about him is that he his branch of economics is game theory. And so when he got appointed, everyone was like, oh my God, he's going to be using all of this sophisticated game theory to be negotiating a better deal for Greece. And of course he came out like all game theorists would and said, I'm not using game theory. I'm just standing up for the people. And so this set the stage for... The most angry and fractious and horrible and sleepless and protracted and endless negotiations that I can ever remember. I mean, honestly, it makes this Iran deal look like, uh, you know, a piece of cake.
5: Well, one of the things that's really interesting about having a con- an academic in there, and by the way, verofacus um got kicked out last week. Um, So he actually gave an interview, and he told everything, I mean, from his point of view, obviously, about what the actual negotiations consisted of. And although he might have wanted to use a sophisticated game theory... Um, in, in making the negotiations work. What actually happened from his perspective is he was talking about the economics of things and he was talking to other people who were just lawyers who were like, you have no leg to stand on, you're going to follow what we say. You're yep. just going to go uh,
2: the his, line. his line was that... Wolfgang you, he, Schäuble in yeah. particular was just saying, no, das geht nicht. You can't do that. This yeah, is, there's a way that you, that we do deal with these things and you have to dot your I's and cross your T's and you haven't dotted your I's and cross your T's. So I am not listening to whatever substantive comments that you're trying to make. Right. I am trying to put this deal together and you are not doing what you need to do in order to put a deal together.
4: So, yeah, Verifax's best line about this was that whenever he tried to make a point about economics, he might as well have gotten up and sung the Swedish national anthem <laughs> for all the response it got. But I, so I want to kind of again try to which which
2: is a little bit self serving because the fact is that you know as he knows none of these other finance ministers are economists there's no reason why they should try and engage him in economic debate that's not really the purpose the purpose is to renegotiate a bailout deal
4: yes so here's I think that the big picture thing to keep in mind again for this part of the story which is that uh, Alexis Tsipras and Varoufakis show up in government and they have a theory which is that the previous government's uh, that had run Greece had not fought hard enough and had not threatened the possibility of default um, realistically enough to scare Europe into giving them a better deal, and that they were and they were convinced that if they just made a a realistic showing, if they if they really made Schabery and Germany and the other northern Europeans countries believe that Greece would default and possibly exit the euro if it couldn't get a good enough deal, but probably just default. It, this would finally get some movement, that this, they, they would win some concessions. The problem with this is that eventually Germany decided it wouldn't be so bad if Greece left the euro. And there's a reason for this, which is that compared to 2012, Europe had done a lot in order to make to contain contagion, like we were discussing before, had done a lot to make sure that if Greece did leave, they were prepared to take care of whatever kind of fire broke out in the financial markets. By And part of this was through the ECB which we've talked about their QE program they're buying bonds that plays an essential role in this also there are other bail- there's a new permanent bailout fund that essentially could be used to deal with banks in but really all you need countries. to look
2: at here is spanish bond spreads which you know is a, is a very sort of geeky thing to look at but back in 2012 when people were you know really scared about Greece or 2011 spanish bond spreads were really high and the and the Spanish government needed to pay a huge amount of money to borrow money because people were worried about contagion. Right now, Spanish bond spreads are basically zero. Spain can borrow at nothing, and no one is worried about it. And these things are entirely self-fulfilling. If people are worried about contagion, then there will be, a, be contagion. If people are not worried about contagion, there will not be contagion. And the bond market was saying loud and clear, we are not worried about contagion.
5: So I want to just jump in here and agree with you guys that... The the biggest mistake they made was kind of this wishful thinking that if they had the democratic vote, if they their, the voices of the Greek people were against austerity and for better negotiations, and they also wanted to stay in the European Union and the eurozone, um, then somehow that was going to just the, by the force of their conviction going to help. But on the other side, um, the, the Germans, uh, which were leading the other side, the negotiations, on the other side had. Actual preparations for kicking the Greeks out, yeah. number one, and that was real, real preparations. Whereas on the Greek side, they were like, "Oh, we're not going to do those preparations because we want to show you that we have good faith in these negotiations to make them work." And on the and the other thing they had on the German side was the ECB. They basically controlled the ECB, which, which is to say, they controlled the um, extent to which Greek the Greek banking system was actually working.
4: Yes. So the the key thing here is that. Greece's banks are alive entirely at the mercy of the European Central Bank, um, which has been giving them emergency lending. A few weeks ago, there was the referendum um, that uh, we, you know, that made huge news around the world, where essentially the Greek voters came out and rejected the austerity policies that Europe had offered. Um, when they called that referendum, the ECB basically triggered a run on Greek banks by saying, We're not we're gonna cap the amount of emergency lending. They didn't even revoke all the lending. They just capped the amount. That's the power that, and they nearly destroyed the Greek banking system just by doing that. That's the power they have over Greece's economy.
5: Right. That and that was Alexis Cyprus's like attempt to gain leverage over the negotiations and it totally failed because the totally they does. just turned so, so, around and and so, closed so up this, the banks. So
2: this was the this was the, the, the saddest referendum. Like, referendums are rare and important things. And they, <laughs> and they are, you know, they are a one-off opportunity for a population to make a momentous decision one way or the other for the future of how their country is run in some important way this referendum was none of the above this referendum was like a political stunt it turns out which had zero practical effects on absolutely anything except for maybe it increased the cost of the bailout by another 10 billion euros
5: yeah it actually they ended up with a worse um, offer which they ended up accepting I just I do want to throw in though that there are, you know, their negotiating tactics didn't work, but they didn't have to fail as badly as they did. Like, even Yanis was mentioning that, you know, they had a few tricks up their sleeve that they didn't pull out. They didn't threaten, for example, to haircut the the 2012 bonds that the ECB held. They were uh, thinking of also um, issuing IOUs that they, they, so they could was, have threatened to this was to actually do. the
2: point at which Yanis Varoufakis gets fired by yeah. Alexis Tsipras, yeah. is when he gives an interview after, you know, on about two hours sleep over a, a week to mm-hmm. Ambrose Evans Pritchard of the Daily Telegraph saying, yeah, we should really have started issuing Scrip a week ago. Right. You know, we should have basically effectively well, devalued they, a week ago. They, they um, also had another crazier plan, which yeah. was,
4: well, it's not totally crazy if you want to exit the euro, but the, the last step was they were going to seize the Bank of Greece, essentially. They were, which yeah. is the, uh, essentially a part of the European Central it, it, The Bank of Greece, it's easiest to think of it as a emanation of the European Central Bank. Um, they were just going to take it. They were going to take the central bank, which really I think just would have ended with them leaving the euro because they said, "Okay, well you have your bank, go." One of the so, ideas, so one of the the, ideas
5: what... I thought was pretty cool that my friend came up with was like they could have also, if they wanted to play hardball, because after all Germany was playing hardball with the ECB, they could have just said, "Hey, you know what? We're going to issue pass- or European passports to all the Syrian refugees that came on our shore." <laughs> they, the truth is, they never played hardball. They yeah. always assumed that Germany wanted this to work, and it turns out Germany doesn't seem to want it to work. Well, I think yeah,
2: that, and, and to okay. this day the. Germans and especially the Finns and even you know even possibly the Spanish although that's a bit weird they they kind of have got to this place where they want Germany to leave and Wolfgang Schäuble who's also operating on two hours sleep and is just going completely insane at this point, starts literally talking and wanting to put in the final deal this thing about a timeout, he called it, which is the single most insane concept that anyone's come I up actually, with I don't yet. think it's that insane. I actually,
4: I, I'm the only person I know who's tried to defend this, but I do not think... Hey Felix, give the explain explain why you think it's insane and then I'll try to defend it.
2: So, so Schäuble's idea is that you can exit the euro for five years and then if you... Somehow we'll have a massive rebound in your economy, and the Germans come around and suddenly start loving Greece, then maybe we 'll let you back in again
4: yeah, so if you take it seriously and on its face value that that's the plan that's insane because the thing about leaving the if the thing about leaving the euro is that all of the pain comes immediately. Right, you have a potential financial crisis that follows. Um, then you have to try and rebuild your economy. And by the time you've rebuilt your economy, why on earth would you go back to the old system that caused all this havoc to begin with? However, if you just think of this as a way of easing Greece out of the euro permanently, and then they never really
2: plan to come back,
4: but it's but not easing.
2: It's, all of the pain, as you say, comes at the beginning. There's well, no
4: ease about it. Legally, there are some things like it might they might get to keep EU membership. You know, while they're in this temporary timeout. Sure, period. I mean
2: you can be yeah. you can be part of the EU. With no one's talking about them leaving. Well, I mean, well no, there are, are talking people about talking about, them about leaving that. the EU. But, yeah. but Schäuble was not talking about. Well, them I think
4: in Schäuble Schäuble's EU. mind, actually, this is that's part of it because he's a bizarre. So, Germany's finance minister is a very very literal minded incredibly legalistic person. I don't know if it's out of convenience or if this is just how he thinks, but whereas pretty much everyone else in Europe thinks, okay, well we can bend the rules here, we can bend them there. He's like, no, we must, you know, you must fall he- he's he's kind of the ultimate German stereotype. He's just like you must march along with the rules. Like that's it. So I think he really is looking for legalistic ways to kind of ease Greece out while he- you know, at the same time, in his mind, by getting rid of them, making the remainder of the European Union stronger, I, I disagree that that would be the outcome. But
5: I mean, the five years—the five in the five years—is the most ridiculous part, right? Like the, the, the basic point that you can leave the euro zone and then someday in the future possibly join it again when you're in good shape—that doesn't seem un, unrealistic. But five just does sounds random.
4: Yeah, no, five is sort of like
5: a I
2: think so, an easy number. So, in any case. The the referendum happens, it does nothing, uh, and then when push comes to shove, Alexis Tsipras ends up agreeing to precisely the thing that he was elected to say no to, to precisely the thing that they were, he called a referendum to say no to, and that the Greek people did say no to. It's actually no worse to, than
5: but, the thing, that referendum yeah, said no he, to. He
2: winds up saying yes to all of it, and it's this incredibly sort of humiliating Moment in Greek history. I'm going to now talk about debt, but before I talk about debt, we're gonna we're gonna bring this this part of the podcast to a close, and I'm gonna talk to you about something much happier than Greek misery, which is my new sweater. Can you believe that? It's like that's <laughs> I no, mean, I can't, Felix. <laughs> this is I I have a really awesome new super soft gray cotton. Cardigan hoodie thing from theory, it is awesome, and I got it from Trunk Club. And this is literally how easy it is you go along to trunkclub.com, and then you sign up and you talk to a person, a real human being who talks to you, finds out what you like, um, you know, knows your sizes, your tastes, everything like that. And what I said to my person, who's called Megan, who's lovely, is I, re- I really need a cardi for sort of lying around the house. It needs to be comfortable. Sometimes I, there are things where I'm fussy about these things. It needs to be all natural fibers. I don't want um, too tight ribbing around the wrists because sometimes there were, you know, French cuff shirts and stuff, and I want to be able to just throw it on. It needs to be comfortable. I, was, I had this long list of demands and requests. And then what happens is I get this beautiful cardboard trunk in the mail. I open it up, and in there, there's like five or six different cardigans, and I try them all on, and they all fit great, but some are better than others, and eventually I'd say, I I want this and that and the other. I pick out this awesome theory cardigan, and I throw the rest of the Cardi's back in the trunk, I send it back off with UPS, and the Cardi is mine, and there's no going to shops, there's no faffing around with, you know, trying things on in dressing rooms and pressure and any of that it just all happens at home and it's super easy so you should try this out they have everything they will make suits for you they'll send you shoes and socks and trousers and shirts and literally any kind of clothing you want they have these amazing um, swimming trunks for the summer which have great prints all over them trust me those are great go to trunkclub.com slash money you'll answer some simple questions you'll get put in touch with a stylist and then you will be happy so um trunkclub.com slash money and it's all free and this is not a subscription thing um the the shipping is free the trying everything on is free you don't have to buy things that you don't want you don't pay any money if, except for the actual clothes which you buy um and then it's uh, you, you're gonna look awesome because frankly it's, you know guys you don't look awesome You want to look awesome. You will look awesome. Trunkclub.com slash money. Okay, so I am coming back to Greece, which now has this deal. Um, But then after the deal is done, the IMF comes in, um, sort of, kind of unhelpfully at this point, and the IMF has always been one of the three big lenders to Greece. They used to be called the Troika. They don't like calling themselves the Troika anymore, but they're still basically the Troika: it's the e- EU and the ECB and the IMF. And the IMF has always been part part of you know throwing in billions and billions of euros to help bail out Greece. But then after this deal was done, the IMF says, uh, "Yeah, uh, this we don't lend." Two countries which have no chance of paying the money back, and everyone's like, "Shh, don't say that."
5: Didn't they come out like actually before the referendum vote and said something like, what? "Actually, Greece needs a thirty, fifty-year hiatus on well, paying no, back." No, so what, what
4: they what they did okay. was they yeah. came out. Before the referendum, they said Greece's debt looks unsustainable. The Sunday referendum, then came these negotiations where they hammered out the final deal. In private, they circulated a memo saying to all the finance ministers, "Hey, there's no way we can lend to Greece under the terms you're considering because you're creating a situation where, debts, where Greece's debt's going to be unsustainable." Then they hammered out this deal anyway. So then on Monday, or yeah, you know, I think yeah, on Monday they went public and they said. Greece's debt, the way you are imagining this program is going to work, will be unsustainable. It is... Okay, ludicrous. so let
2: me, let me give a little bit of background yeah. here. The IMF is what's known as a preferred creditor. Everyone always pays the IMF in full and on time. Countries restructure their debts all the, to other countries all the time. That's known as the Paris Club. They restructure their debts to the private sector all the time. That's called the London Club. The one thing they never do ever is restructured their debts to the imf and the imf always gets paid and greece in the in the midst of the craziness around the referendum actually defaulted to the imf which no one ever does i mean seriously it's up there with sudan and cuba and i think argentina and that's about it um and all of those countries cured the default and i am and greece too is going to cure the default to the imf because you always pay the imf but the point is that the IMF because it's so keen on always getting paid doesn't lend money which can't get paid back
5: that sounds pretty and, wise actually
2: yeah. and and this is what this is the one thing which the Europeans of course have this have this the 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 technical term is you know delay and pray or extend and pretend or you know whatever you want to call it um, they will just keep on lending money, which just comes back to them. Most of this bailout money, you have to understand, is basically just money so that Greece can pay the interest payments back to the people who are lending Greece the money. You know, it's this big circle, and so they they just keep on lending more and more money back to themselves, which. Persuades them that they can pretend that Greece's debt is sustainable, even though everyone knows it isn't, and that Greece is never actually going to be able to pay back all of this money. So the IMF is basically the kid saying the emperor has no clothes, you are not getting this money back, you're signing another 80 billion euro deal or something, and that's eighty billion dollars, which you will never get paid back. And the Europeans are saying, Shh, don't say that because we have to pretend that we're gonna get the money back. Um you know, in order to get this deal done. Well, with the exception of Schwabler, who's actually saying
4: we should just leave. It's it's weird (laughs) in a way that the two of them, they're on other sides because Germany refuses to do a deal where they will forgive greece's debt up front but basically they're saying we think the uh, or at least that also keeps them in the euro but they're saying we might be able to forgive some debt if you leave the euro and the imf is sort of saying well you one way or the other to make this sustainable you need to forgive debt
5: the way i look at it is germany saying get out or get on your knees and imf is saying like being on your knees isn't going to help greece so they they're they're getting fewer and fewer options
2: so greece asked for debt restructuring as part of this deal and as with all of the rest of Greece's demands they didn't get it but the Europeans did at least put a line in saying, well, if you behave yourselves and go ahead and do all of these austerity measures, which everyone knows they're not going to be able to do, then maybe we will come along in a few months' time and start talking about perhaps reprofiling your debt. And so this is the bit of the podcast where I start getting really geeky and talking about sovereign debt restructuring because, frankly, the only reason I even wanted to talk about Greece was so that I could get geeky and talk about sovereign no, debt so, restructuring.
4: This is fun. This is actually... I, I've. I, for, I may have some things to add here, too. So,
2: let, let's, so let's dance. So I'll, I'll th- be
5: the straight man. Hey, Felix, what is, what is debt reprofiling?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for asking, Kathy. Debt reprofiling is this wonderful thing where you don't reduce the amount of debt you have, but you push it off. So if I owe you $100, bucks, let us say I owe you 100 bucks tomorrow. Mm. You say, oh, you don't have 100 bucks tomorrow, so why don't you just pay me 100 bucks next month? Mm-hmm. That's a reprofiling.
5: So it's like getting – instead of a 30-year mortgage, you have a 100-year mortgage.
4: Yeah, exactly. Where and you don't have to pay the in- for the
2: first 70 years either. Yeah, And then <laughs> sometimes the interest rate goes down as well. Yeah. And if you try and do this in the bond market, bondholders just roll their eyes and they say, are you kidding me? You know, if you push off um, – debt repayment to what the great sovereign debt restructuring lawyer Lee Bukite calls the 12th of never, then that's effectively the same as just cutting the debt. Why don't you just give me that 65% haircut right now, and I can just take that pain right now and move on, rather than pretending that you owe me all of this money, which I will never actually receive?
5: And this brings me to the sort of vision I, I get keep on getting conflicted and confused about the future of Europe. Is it going to be like the United States where you have you know states that sometimes just get federal money um on a yearly basis or is Greece is just going to, is Greece going to be one of those nations in Europe that just gets money from Europe every so, I, I think so we, this we is, will come the, to
2: that that's really yeah. important but I think So we, it's important but like if you're Mississippi or Alabama or somewhere like that there are massive flows from you know the federation to the state every year. And those are just natural flows. And no one is pretending that they're loans and no one is pretending that they have to get paid back. It's just part of the f- way that money flows around the federation. Can,
4: can, I, can I put that in slightly more, a little bit more English, just because instead of saying flows, what Felix is saying is, if you're a Mississippi, you've got tons of federal money coming in every year in the form of food stamps, in the form of highway funding, things along those lines. The US, the United States... Um, my friend Matt O'Brien at, at, the, at the Washington Post likes to point this out all the time. The United States is essentially a monetary union, just like the EU. Um, however, it also has a fiscal union. We have a budget. We have a federal government with a budget that gives money to all the different states, so that we have one monetary policy for everybody. But we also have something to make sure that states that might not fare as well under that one monetary policy have other kinds of money to or have other kinds of money flowing in to fix their budgets. In Europe, they just have one monetary policy, which is going to work really well for Germany and really poorly for Greece. But if Greece is not essentially the shitter because the because of hard money, uh, Germany doesn't want to give them money to to you know keep their social safety net going to keep paying pensions. They don't want a Mississippi. They don't want a Mississippi. So they might be willing to keep doing this flow of debt to keep to keep this illusion that Greece will eventually pay back their obligations, but they're not willing to do. Uh, just direct fiscal transfers.
5: But, you know, if you have profiling enough, if you have consistent profiling, reprofiling, then it might end up being the same thing.
2: Well, okay, so this is this is the question, is, like, you know, if you really do put off the debt until the 12th of never, then effectively it works out similar. But the big difference is that it affects Greece's debt-to-GDP ratio. That it's Because Greece still nominally has the debt, the n- debt is still nominally going up every year. And so Greece looks like an economic basket case forever in that case. And it basically just becomes a ward of the EU and it can't borrow money. And actually, one of the parts of the agreement is that Greece is expected, believe it or not, to go back to the public markets and be able to borrow money on the bond markets again at some point. And the bond markets, you know, for all that they understand political reality, don't like lending to a country with debt of 200 percent of gdp and no realistic way of being able to pay it back so at some point it would make sense instead of reprofiling it would make sense for the europeans to say okay we will just forgive you a large chunk of this debt which is never going to get paid back anyway the problem is that that's politically very difficult for the germans and the other northern europeans to do because when you forgive debt that is a budget item and that means you are basically giving Greece that money and no one wants to give which, Greece money
5: which New York and California do for Mississippi every year and they're just like yeah that's part of being a union
4: absolutely exactly. and that's that's the difference that and you know at the top of the show I said this that the reason people are paying attention to Greece so care or so intensely is because it speaks to the future of the entire European project and what we're seeing here is that you know the, there was this idea that there would one day probably be a crisis like this and that it would actually force Europe to come together closer that, people would say, okay, well, we need to all band together to make this work. And instead, it's doing exactly the opposite. We're realizing that the Germans really don't care about Greeks, and they are happy to see them go. Same with the Finns and the Danish. They don't care and about the, the Greeks, Southern Europeans.
2: you know, the, the, the emotions are entirely reciprocated. The Greeks yeah. really, really hate the Germans. And you go to Greece, and it's full of Nazi imagery and, you know, talk about reparations from the Second World War and all of that kind of stuff.
4: So you're at this point now where you say, okay, everyone acknowledges that the way the Euro is set up now, with a monetary union, but no, you know, sh- no, bu- no shared budget, no, sh- no fiscal union doesn't really work. But there's obviously no political appetite to actually turn themselves into one giant, you know, fiscal, monetary and political union. Just, there There is it. There's no appetite. No one wants to do it. And it's, it's okay, so, hard to see it
2: ever happening. So I'm going to go from this big picture political union thing back to my little geeky debt research. Okay, sorry, let's thing. go back to it. Because, yeah, that was, that was an important detour, but... I, I just want to finish up here with my favorite bright idea on the debt restructuring side, because this is hilarious and awesome, is that the aforementioned Liebukite, who has been advising Greece, he works for Cleary Gottlieb, as this big f- New York law firm, um, came out last week with a paper which he put on the internet saying, well, if Greece wants to be able to borrow money from bondholders in the next few years. And at the same point uh, and at the same time, the Europeans don't want to give debt any debt uh, give Greece any debt relief. Then there is a way that you can square this circle and get this. In the bailout, what the Europeans should do is they should subordinate themselves to private bondholders. Huh. That they should say um You know, the IMF is senior, but we are junior creditors. And if Greece issues new bonds, then those bonds, so long as we agree, will be technically and officially subordinate or um, senior to us. The bonds will be senior. And so Greece can't pay us back any money without paying the bonds first. And so that would allow Greece to tap the bond markets while still having this massive debt load i think it's hilarious but it's not going to happen because the europeans will never subordinate well so loans. there's this other question about that like what i mean what would
4: greece have to pay on the private markets at this point because one of the issues about whether their debt is sustainable isn't just how much of their gdp they're paying now towards it it's the fact that the terms that they've come to are pretty much guaranteed to keep them at low economic growth and sort of in, 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 in uh, a severe to mild depression for a long time to come. So, I mean, like, even if they could go to the private markets, what what terms would they be offered?
5: I wonder if they if talk to China or Russia about those that question.
4: It's, it's not clear that China or Russia actually have the wherewithal to bail. Some people, This comes up a lot. It's not clear either of those countries right now is a position to bail out Greece.
2: It's- Although there was also uh, one of the many insane, crazy, points in the greece negotiations was the point at which alexis cyprus rocks up in moscow and starts taking like smiley photographs gripping the hand of vladimir putin yeah but i
4: I thought it was really telling though it was telling that nothing came of that because russia is an economic basket case right now and china is you know, doesn't have a lot of money just to throw around to to help out this random, you know, Mediterranean nation as far as they're concerned.
5: Felix, while you're keeping an eye on the reprofiling and subordination of debt, I am going to keep an eye on on um, one of the terms in the new agreement with a fifty billion dollar asset sale. Oh yes, Greek. Assets. Oh, yeah,
2: another thing which is never going to happen. To, uh, yeah. So let's let's just finish off since we're this is the fiction podcast. Um, <laughs> Kathy, why don't you tell us about this particular bit of fiction in the in the Greece bailout deal? The,
5: this is almost seemingly designed to humiliate Greek people and infuriate them against the Germans. It's that part of the deal is they have to sell assets to be determined later, um, uh, and for fifty billion dollars to raise money to pay back um, the Germans. And it's I you just can't imagine what exactly they're going to sell. The part, you know, what... well,
4: so they it's fifty billion euro that, that It's things like ports. Like or space where ports used to be, I think there's some actually island real estate in there. I think I, I'm I'm a little fuzzy on that. Uh, it's airports, things along those lines. So they're they're state assets. Um, and I mean, to give you a sense of how bad the deal that Cyprus came back wa- with was, um, one of the victories, as far as he was concerned, like one of the things he bragged about was that the Germans wanted this investment fund where they were supposed to put the state assets to be managed in Luxembourg, right? That they were going to take their state assets and, and hand them over to people, uh, to foreigners, essentially, to sell off. Cyprus managed a deal where he got to keep the privatization fund in Athens, and managed Whoa. in Athens. And this, was, yeah, and this was like his big victory, but that was like all he had to brag about. Like, that was how severe How does that this... guy sleep at all? I don't think he but does that. There, right
2: there is no yeah, there, there is absolutely zero. 0. zero. 0.0. That could be my number this week. Mm-hmm. Zero is the chance that Greece will be able to raise 50 billion euros by selling off assets. It's just not going to happen.
4: They've the, tried it before. The,
2: the privatization has been part of every single bailout, Greek bailout in living memory. And they've always said, you should be getting three or four billion euros a year. And they've managed to get like 500 million euros. And now they want 50 billion. It's, it's just... It's not going to happen. So yeah, I mean this is like I think it's an, it speaks again to,
4: aside from the they're pretending that they'll ever pay back the debt, they're pretending that they can come up with mechanisms like this to pay back the debt. Um, it, the whole bailout is sort of this one mutual delusion. It's, it's theater,
2: a, yeah, it's theater. It's theater. So but with we consequences. Will come to the, we will come to the end, we will, we will come back to Greece at some point, but I, I feel that is a good. First take at what on earth is this hilariously um,
4: horrifying, crazy and tragic? Tweet, yeah, tweet <laughs> tragedy. I mean, in the end, you know, in the end, the biggest number here is twenty five percent, and that's the unemployment rate in Greece. They're and all this, higher for youth. and, and fi- it's about fifty for youth. I mean, in the end, that's what all this is about: is that they have they they're going through all this theater. Um, because Germany and the Northern Europeans refuse to accept the reality that some of this debt has to be forgiven or, again, pushed, they have to be pushed out entirely. Although, I mean, to yeah. be
2: fair to the Germans, it's not clear that debt forgiveness would automatically make the unemployment go away, but no. it might help at the margin.
4: No, no. It, it, but there is, again, it's just the source of all this theater and uncertainty, and the fact is it's been exacerbated by the last few weeks where you've had all the banks closed and the bank run um, or the, the bank run that tr- caused all the banks to be closed, um, which has knocked several points off GDP, probably. I mean, which is just intensifying the economic pain for all these people.
2: Okay, so one last sponsor this week. You're going to be quite happy about this one because I can save you a lot of money on your recruiting costs. Because unlike Greece... We are growing, we are hiring people, and we are hiring good people, but hiring good people is not easy, and the way you hire good people is to go to ZipRecruiter.com. It is the easiest and best and simplest and only sensible way to hire people. Basically, you go to ZipRecruiter.com and you put your job posting up, and it automatically winds up being posted to over a 100 different job sites with one click. It gives you the... Highest chance of finding the perfect candidate and you will basically be matched with one of over 4 million different candidates. It's kind of awesome. So try it for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash SlateMoney. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash SlateMoney. Jordan, what's your number this week?
4: Uh, My number is... Thirty-two. It's not really economic, but it's my favorite number I've come up with or I've encountered this week, which is uh, maybe the perfect age to get married, uh, according to a new analysis by a professor named uh, Nick uh, Wolfinger at the University of Utah. Essentially, um, there's long been this kind of conventional wisdom um, in social science as well as just kind of popularly that the longer you wait to get married the lesser your chances of divorce. And apparently for a long time, that really was true if you looked at the numbers. But he analyzed, uh, I guess, a CDC data, a Center for Disease Control uh, data uh, for around 2006. And what he found was uh, now if you get married, if you wait to get married past your early 20s and wait until about age, your late 20s or early 30s, your chances of divorce keep going down. But then after you get past about 32, your chances of divorce start going back
2: up.
5: You're making it sound like divorce is a bad thing. Not
4: necessarily. And,
2: and, and wait, and this is CDC? Like, CDC has, it, like, divorce is a disease now, which is measured by the CDC? Uh,
4: it's like the National Family Formation Survey. I mean, CDC handles a lot of interesting stuff. My
5: new thing it. is the good divorce. The good,
2: the, so so wait, hang on a sec. I need to ask you so, this. Jordan, but anyway, how, how, old, how old were you when you got married? I was, uh, well, tw- 29. So I, I got um, married Kathy, right around the perfect time. Kathy, how old were you? 25. Yeah, you were early. So yeah, you're, well, you're not really you have a slightly higher chance of divorce. Well I think I think I kind of I don't know if it's in the cards <laughs> nailed it. I got I got married at 33 which i think is kind of
4: perfect so well yeah so you were yeah you're pretty good there because even though it your chances started going up after fair day two it's still fairly kind of, low
5: i mean sorry i'm a nerd but conditional probability like given that i've been married for almost 20 years now i feel like my chance yeah are no yours
4: yours have probably decreased to <laughs> all but um my um, number Kathy, my what number, is your number is
5: 483 billion that's that's a big number yeah it's an amount of money that china just put in to stem panic uh they gave some a huge amount of money um access to a huge amount of money 483 billion dollars um in one of course to uh for a liquidity provider who's just basically making sure that the market has liquidity just trading their heads off so that people don't panic
2: not good do you think it's gonna work
5: Uh, (laughs) no i don't felix what's your number
2: (laughs) My number is five hundred and ninety-three million dollars, but okay, so it's a minion-related number. Ooh, you, you might have seen minions somewhere around you. Felix, in the past
5: not only have I seen weeks. minion, but I saw Magic Mike XXL, and it was amazing.
2: Sorry, I had to get that in. It is an amazing movie. Um, So Minions the Movie is an animated film which cost about $74 million to make. And $74 million is a lot of money for a movie, but not a huge amount of money. The huge amount of money is $593 million, which is the value of the publicity campaign over and above... The 74 million. Mm. basically about half of that is a sh- is a cash layout so they're spending on the order of 300 million dollars which is four times the amount they spent on making the film just to promote the film buying ads you know buying posters this is worldwide trailers. right this is globally i assume not just but then there's US. also there's they have this is my favorite one is they put stickers on half a billion bananas they put Minion stickers <laughs> on half a billion dollars. I'm pretty bananas.
5: sure they didn't. They tired so much. They paid people to do that. <laughs> One yeah. guy
2: just on every. That's a lot of bananas. On- um, that's a lot of bananas. Um, and yeah, and then they started putting Minions on cereal boxes and stuff, which, you know, apparently helps to sell cereal, but also helps to promote the film. If you add up the value of all of the promotion, it's $600 million. It's mm, insane. That's crazy. Okay. Anyway, that is it for us this week. Uh, thank you for listening to Slate Money. Uh, do subscribe to the show. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Leave a review if you like it. And write to us, as ever, please, slate money at Slate.com. Many thanks to Audrey Quinn, the producer, and to the managing producer, Joel Meyer, and our executive producer, Andy Bowers. Slate Money is part of the Panoply Network, so check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Uh, Including ink. You'll hear a bit about that in a minute. But we will talk to you next week on slate money.
1: Welcome back to Ink Uncensored. It's a time honored profitable tradition to make money off of people's desire to intoxicate themselves, legally or illegally. But in the wake of what is arguably a nationwide epidemic of opiate addiction, uh, there's been a boom in companies trying to help people get less high. Uh, We all know about Betty Ford and Hazelden. But, Will, you've been looking at some startups in this space with some different uh, approaches. What have you found?
0: Yeah, so found some pretty interesting startups. First of all, there's no one big major player in the space, making, Hmm. you know, technology to help people keep sober. But so, and just like the rehab community, most of it is mom and pop rehab facilities, you know, one guy owns a private residence. So Hmm. that, that, that's what's interesting.
3: Yeah, I mean, yeah, we could
0: dive pretty deep down into, you know, what's wrong with addiction treatment in the US, which, you know, starts and ends with the 5 to 10% success rate of the 12 step program. Uh, mm. but however, wow. moving on. <laughs> however, <laughs> however um, yeah, so with, um, let's see, one of the most interesting companies, fairly new, just released an app last week and already has 25,000 users, is SoberGrid. It's a uh, geolocation social app. So it's like, you know, Uber or Tinder, Tinder. Grindr, but it's not dating. Um, it's <laughs> literally for fellowship say you just get out of rehab and you're looking for support anywhere around you that's a cup of tea coffee you open up the app and it'll say hey there's somebody who's sober 200 feet from you there's somebody two miles away and you can hit out like an emergency call button like hey i'm fucking freaking out i need to talk to somebody right now it's aa
1: 2.0 yeah that's really cool
0: actually yeah no it's great and this guy uh the founder Bo man you know recovering addict uh sober now for a pretty good amount of time. His goal in five years is to have 33 million users. And it sounds crazy, but it's a global app. He already has users, you know, across the US, Paris, London, and um, the global market for sober people with a smartphone is 250 million <laughs> wait, people. Wait, wait, wait. So
3: he just wants everyone who's not wasted at the moment to be logged yeah. on.
0: Yeah,
1: totally. In recovery. So many, in so recovery. Many business models going the other way around, <laughs> Yeah, you know? exactly.
0: But, you know, it, it's it's props to him. The because... anti-Denny's. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, And then you have um, Hoyos Labs, which we've actually talked about before. Mm -hmm. They're a biometrics company. They're working with um, some unnamed auto manufacturers in in Detroit. So Cadillac. (laughs) That that narrows it down. Yeah, right. Uh, Working for, uh, you know, biometric sensors inside a car that'll track your eye movements. And if you're drunk or tired, it won't start the car. But um, also, mm. the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration released—they've uh, been working on this technology since 2008—anti-drunk driving. Mm. It's uh, the driver alcohol detection system for safety. It's basically two breathalyzers on the steering wheel. Supposedly, they're not that obtrusive. Um, <gasps> or you can. they have a fingerprint sensor on the starter for, like, you know, those cars where you don't have keys. You huh. just press a button. Why two
1: breathalyzers?
0: Uh, just so you could— do double, like, I don't what? know. You can do some kind of double fisting joke, but it didn't work out, you know? Feel like you're still at For the, the passenger. Bar? Yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. So, so either drunk way, way home. <laughs> well, maybe, you know, when you're driving... Oh, it's one like, can be near your mouth, if you're, but then you're turning drunk. I yeah, don't know. Uh, that that, that uh, sounds like a really
1: I bad idea. I feel like they but, could
3: really market this to insurance companies. Yeah, yeah.
1: right, totally. But and, you're you're dancing around the one that was my favorite, which is the, 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 uh, the, uh, the THC, THC inhibitor. Yeah.
0: So the THC buzzkill made by a company <laughs> called uh, Hemp Health. It's a very small company making products with CBD, which is one of the uh, active ingredients in in cannabis. And so basically it's a a mouth spray. So you you get too high uh, off cannabis and you're super blazed, don't know what to do, trying to straighten up. Really can't do anything other than wait it out, except now this product, CBD... Um, only you just spray it in your mouth Wait, and it. I asked this an delicately antidote? but Has, has there, anyone an tried antidote. this? Yeah, well, you know CBD, which is in cannabis, yeah. but um, it's not psychoactive. How, John, how badly did you effect. need this in high school?
3: I needed this so
1: badly in high school, and and in yeah, yeah. There were a couple of nights where I was kind of locked in the bathroom in my parents' house, just trying to like awesome. chill out a little. It was not, <laughs> it was not awesome at all. Oh, wow.
0: All right. Let's close <laughs> opportunity. Wait.
3: So, Will, how does this CBD stuff actually work?
0: So CBD is, has a, a range of benefits. Um, you know, we recently we've known about it for a while, but we've just been like cracking the shell on what it can do and um, it can counteract THC in your bloodstream. It'll go in your bloodstream and kind of displace the THC. Wow. And, um, you know, it also has been found to make cancer cells stop. For multiplying and reduce tumor size, Um, it's been helpful for Alzheimer's patients, like calming them down. You know, at at some points, Alzheimer's patients can get very aggressive, especially towards caregivers. Hmm. Um, So there's a range of benefits, but this one in particular is slated at you know sobriety.
3: Interesting.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, I know we can laugh at all these apps trying to you know capitalize on addiction, which is you know fantastic business model for a lot of people, but it is, uh, you know, addiction is a terrible disease. And right now, more people OD and die on opioids than get killed in car accidents in this country. So I think it's great that, you know, there are some apps and some companies who are focusing on this space without trying to fleece
1: people who are in a tough situation. Fair enough. All right. Hi again, this is James Ledbetter, editor of Inc. Magazine and host of the Panoply podcast, Inc. Uncensored. I hope you enjoyed the brief tease we gave you today. And if you like it, please subscribe to us. You can find Ink Uncensored at iTunes.com Panoply.